0: Our scripture lesson today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's share in God's good word together. Get along among yourselves, each of you doing your part. Our counsel is that you warn the freeloaders to get a move on. Gently encourage the stragglers and reach out for the exhausted, pulling them to their feet. Be patient with each person, attentive to individual needs. Be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you, who belong to Christ, Jesus, to live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Scripture calls us to be light in the darkness. To let our light shine. In the first words written in our New Testament... Paul called a small group of new Christians to be children of the light. 2,000 years later, the first letter to the Thessalonians still offers powerful guidance for us today as we live as people of the light. Today we finish our sermon series, People of the Light, and I think Paul saved the best for last. He gives us great advice about how to live, how to live a great, deep, and joyful and meaningful life. So let's get started. As a way of remembering where we've been, our context, Paul is going to travel from Antioch just north of Jerusalem to Thessalonica, and starts a church in less than 100 days. It may have been as short as three weeks or maybe as long as four months, but most scholars would agree it's probably less than 100 days. That's a very fast way to start a church. And so as we go to the map here, Jerusalem's gonna be down here off of the screen. He's gonna come up here to Antioch, all the way across to Turkey here in Ephesus, modern day Seljuk. He's gonna come up into Europe through Philippi, and then 90 miles southwest over here to Thessalonica. Now here's the thing, from Jerusalem to Thessalonica, 918 miles by foot or by boat. As we zoom in here uh, on the map, you can see that Philippi and Thessalonica, very close, about 90 miles, like I said, southwest, They are going to run Paul both out of Philippi and Thessalonica. He's going to be at Jason's house. There's going to be a mob and they're going to sneak him out in the dark of night and he's going to hoof it over here to Berea. And he's going to hide out there and then catch a ship, come all the way down here to Greece, into Athens and to Corinth. And he's going to be in these areas known as Macedonia where Thessalonica is the capital city and Achaia, which is this area around Corinth and Athens, Greece. And well, why is Paul on the run? Well, they wanted to kill him. We already know that he had gotten a flogging of 40 lashes minus one. And they did it that way because they knew 40 lashes could kill a man. And so they just would keep people on the very edge of death. The Roman Empire was extremely cruel in the way they treated the people that they ruled over. And so when Paul couldn't return to Thessalonica, he sent Timothy, his associate, to encourage the new church there. Paul doesn't know if he'll ever get back to them. And so he sends Timothy, Timothy comes back, and now he's writing a letter. He's so excited that they're doing so well, this young fledgling church. And so in week one, uh, we learned this. While Paul was criticized, everyone is criticized, but we're not to attack back. The Christian church is to be different than the world, different than the culture. Will you say that with me? We are not to attack back. No, that's not who we are. We are people of truth and grace. So the early church would respond to criticism with joy in spite of great suffering. It wasn't that they didn't have a hard time. They had the hardest of times, but they responded in joy because they knew their life was an example of what Christ wanted from them. Other people were noticing their good works and their light and their love and their affection for one another and to all the world. And so Paul writes it like this. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in that region known as Macedonia and also to the south in Achaia. They were examples and they're examples to us. And we today are called to be examples for our world. Albert Hubbard wrote this back uh, At the end of the 1800s and the start of the 1900s, he says this about criticism. He says, the only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing, to say nothing, and to be nothing. And both Jesus and Paul say, you're not nothing, friends. You are something. You are the light of the world. You are the people of the light. You are the children of the light. You matter. What you do matters. What you say matters. How you act matters. You are the people of the light. Criticism is just a part of the deal. That was week one. Week two is how do we live into this? How are we faithful to be full of faith, to be steadfast, to be people who overcome adversity? Well, you have to do it in all areas of your life. We're to be faithful in all our areas, in our mind, in our body, and our relationships. And this was really important at that time because Thessalonica was in the heart of the main travel route from east to west. Uh, Over here would be Istanbul, Turkey, what they called Byzantium at the time. You're about halfway through right here in the middle is Thessalonica. And you can see it's a port city. You can get there by boat or ship and you also can get there by land. And this via Ignatia or the Ignatian way goes all the way to Italy, all the way to Rome. And so this was the center of life. In the world at that time, and so if there was something that you wanted to try out, um, some vice or something you wanted to find some food, it was all in Thessalonica, and there was a lot of bad things going on in Thessalonica. People, the Christian church was just starting out. This is the earliest Christian writings that we have, and the Roman Empire had gave license to anybody who had power. Uh, basically if you were a man in that culture you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to whenever you wanted to to whoever you wanted to if they were of lower social standing and it was a mess and paul says don't live like them live like christ do the right thing and and more pointedly he would say it like this we are never to take advantage of a person who has less power in the situation not with our minds Certainly not with our bodies and not in our relationships, in our families or at our work, and certainly not in the church. So Paul writes it like this. He says, control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles, the people outside the church who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. Well, we have laws about that today. They did not. And why? Because God's not mocked. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. Friends, at the end of time, uh, which we are still waiting on, and Paul expected really just like the next few days or the next week uh, in his lifetime, they knew that Christ would come again. And when Christ comes again, all things would be known and all things would be made new. So if you were oppressing or doing injustice to people, that was going to be righted. And Paul says, be careful how you live because God's coming back and he will avenge those who have been harmed. He takes care of all of his children. And then Paul says this, we are to mind our own business and to make an acceptable impression on outsiders. Paul was always the missionary, always the one looking for the example of the church to be a winsome, wonderful witness to the world. So he writes it like this. He says, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul didn't want the early church to go back and become accustomed um, to the being cared for and taken care of by people other than the church. And, and friends, we understand this. As a church here at Acts 2, uh, we do the ministry by your generosity. Uh, We don't get tax dollars, you know, over and over again to where, you know, there have been state religions. We don't do that here in our country. And so the thing is, we don't have revenue of people who just give us money. We depend on no one but God and one another to do all the ministries we do. And Paul says that's how it should be. And that was week two. Week three is this. Live like you might be in the end times all the time. Live like you might be in the end times all the time. All the time. And we ask the question, what would you need to do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight at midnight, local time? Paul says, well, the first thing you want to do is to be ready and to get your business done. And so, in some ways, week two was mind your business. Week three is get your business done. What is it that you would want to have done before you die or before Christ comes back, before you see Jesus face to face? And the reason this is so important, friends, is that no one knows when the day of the Lord will be. It will happen unexpectedly because either Christ will come to you or you will go to him. And no one knows when that will be. And so Paul writes it back to them. He says, he says this because some of their people had died and they didn't know if they were missing heaven because they didn't know what to do. They really expected Jesus back any day. So Paul writes back to them. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. By the way, robbers don't tell you when they're going to rob your house. That wouldn't go very well. And so Paul says, Jesus even says, I don't even know. Only the father knows. And so don't worry about it, don't fret about it, but be ready, stay alert, and live every day like it might be your last day, full of love, grace, forgiveness, and joy. So here at the very end, Paul says, listen up friends, until Christ comes again, this is how you are to live, how you can have a great life. It's available to you, and you can live into it today. And so at the very end of the letter. Paul breaks it down into three sections. The first section uh, is verse 12 to 14. And it basically says this, respect your leaders. Will you say that with me? Respect your leaders. Now, I know a lot of folks are like, well, yeah, Pastor Mark, you're going to say that because you're our leader. No, 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 no. Paul is writing back to the church that he started. He's not there. He's not saying respect him. And I'm not saying respect me. I mean, I'm not opposed to that, but that's not what the Scripture is saying. The Scripture is saying, respect those that are among you. Sunday school teachers, right? Va- vacation Bible school workers, the people that helped us start the church. Respect them. If I couldn't be there, who would I want you to listen to? And so a different way of saying this, if you weren't in a religious context, would be honor all who are invested in your development. Um, Yeah, preachers, but also like teachers, coaches, administrators. If you want to have a good life, listen to the people who are invested in you because they love you. They want the best for you. So listen to them. So Paul writes, he says, and now, friends, we ask you to honor those leaders who work so hard for you, who have been given the responsibility of urging and guiding you along in your obedience. Now, he's he's talking about their church leaders who are leading them in his absence. Now, overwhelm them with appreciation and love bless them. Don't make their life hard. They're doing this because they love you. Love them back. Appreciate them. And that is a good word for all of us in whatever organization you're part of. And so he's really saying this. Listen to the core group who started the church, those who are still helping you. And and that's true in the business organization. If you really want to know what something's about, look at the people who started it. You can listen to them and trust them. And so as a church planter myself, as the one who founded Acts 2, if something were to happen to me, or certainly in the early days when I had to be out of town, you know what I'd say to people? they say, well, what, what do we do You know, if the, if the church burns down? I'd say, well, call the fire department, because I can't do anything about that anyway. But other than that, if it's something else, you know what I'd say? I'd say, well, I want you to call this guy right here. This is Paul Davis. Uh, I've known Paul since sixth grade. He was the president of my youth group in Guthrie growing up. And he was the first person to say yes to Acts 2. When Chantel and I were looking for people to help us start the church, uh, Paul and Tanya uh, and their family, they were the very first people to say yes. And so if something were to happen to me and you say, well, what should we do at the church? I'm going to say, well, you should probably talk to Paul because we started in his house. The first Bible studies were in our house and his house. He knows everything about us. He's been with us since day one, since before we even had a worship service. Another person you might want to talk to would be Kathy Wallace. Here's Kathy right here with her son Chad, and here's our family here, and yep, there's Paul Davis right there. This is in the lobby of Edmund North High School. Uh, We were there from November of 1999 all the way to May of 2001 before we went to Cheyenne Middle School. And so these are people who know who we are and know what we've been through, and they are still a part of the church, and they encourage you and bless you. I would want you to listen to people like them. And on our very first birthday after charter, there's Chantel. You might want to listen to her. She knows stuff. And Kathy Wallace, there she is again. This is, you know, 18, 19 years ago now when there was nothing on our property, no parking, no buildings, no running water, no electricity, nothing. But they had a vision. And if something were to happen to me or we were to be gone and you needed to know something, ask Kathy, ask Paul or ask Carolyn Smith. She's been with us since our very first worship service, and she's our lay leader today. So, this was our debt burning. We we had to raise money to pay off the land, and so it took us three years to do that. Uh, It was nearly $350,000, $343,000 exactly. And so, guess what? Here's Paul Davis, helping us burn the note. And yep, there's Kathy Wallace, right there. And my son Noah, he's a little taller now. But friends... This is what Paul's saying. He's not saying, honor me. He's like, honor the people who are helping you, who've been around, who know what this is about. Honor to them and listen to them. And then he says this, and live at peace. Don't give your leaders a hard time. Just get along with one another. So in verse 13, it says this, be at peace among yourselves. Peace is a big deal in our faith. Jesus himself is known as the Prince of Peace. And so um, Eugene Peterson, in his uh, translation of the Bible, the message says it like this. Get along, friends. Get along among yourselves, each of you doing your part. And that's the other thing about life together as a church. Everybody needs to be doing something so that no one has to do more than their fair share. You know, people get worn out if they feel like they have to do everything. So our goal here is that no one feels like they're doing everything, right? You should maybe be a part of One Bible study and come to worship and a place to serve, right? Worship plus two. Worship plus a place to learn and a place to serve. Nobody should do um, too much and no one gets a free ride. So William Barclay, um, on this idea of getting along in peace, all the way back um, in the early 1900s, He wrote it like this. And I think the church is not all that different. He says, Better far that a man should quit a congregation in which he is unhappy and in which he makes others unhappy and find one where he may be at peace. There's that word again. Yep. And so here's the thing. When people come to our church and they're really upset about the church they're coming from, I always get real nervous. I mean, big flags go up. I'm like, oh no, I don't want that drama coming here. But you know what? Sometimes... If if they're listening to the Lord and the Lord's led them here, they can be at peace because they just needed a second chance. They needed a place to start over. They needed a place to be loved and accepted, and we can do that. And, you know, since we've been at this more than 20 years now, there are also people who have come into our life and been a great, wonderful part. But then, you know what? It just didn't work for them anymore. And there are more than 200 wonderful churches uh, within an hour of this place. And so there's lots of good churches. So what you don't want in any church is a lot of upsetness or chaos or angst, uh, a lack of peace, because that will just ruin a church. And Paul writes about division and unity, and so does Jesus. He talks about unity and and not wanting division in the church over and over and over again. So, friends, one of the most important things about being church is getting along, having peace with one another. So Paul writes it like this, our council... Is that you warn the freeloaders to get a move on. Nobody gets a free ride. Gently encourage the stragglers. You're always going to have those. It reminds me of youth group. And reach out for the exhausted. Yep, some folks in our church are just going to be exhausted from time to time. Pulling them to their feet. Be patient with each person. In each of these, when you warn, be patient with them. And when you encourage, be patient with them. And when you reach out, be patient with them. Attentive to each individual need. We're not all alike. We all need different sorts of things to help us along. But in all of those places, Paul says, be patient. Help the church come along, love one another, and be a great example to outsiders and love them as well. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, warn the quitters. Encourage others to be brave alongside you. Help the weak and be patient with all of them. William Barclay writes around the idlers. He says the original term uh, was for people in, like soldiers who had deserted their post, the quitters. And there are some people that, you know, they used to be active in the church and they're just done. And, and we're supposed to encourage that to come back, to get re-involved and, and do the good works and be the light of the world again. Because what you put into it is largely what you get out of it and God meets you right where you are and it takes all of us to do this together. Adam Hamilton, who preached this series a little while ago, he said this really pointedly. He says, you and I, we, are God's strategy for helping other people through discouragement and weakness. People just don't happen to get undiscouraged, right? They don't happen to just accidentally get strong. It's the people of God who are to care and to love and to bless and to lift up the fallen. We are God's strategy for helping other people through discouragement and weakness. And all of us are discouraged or weak at some time. And so, it's our job to lift one another up. And it's also our job to allow others to lift us up when it's the right time. The second thing that Paul writes, the second section of his letter, is that we're to live differently than the world. We are never to take it revenge. Don't take revenge, he says. And, and so you have the first part, 12 to 14, and then the second part is verse 15. What he's saying is that we are to look for the best in each other, that you're to do your best to bring it out of people and to seek the good of everyone, even outsiders. And this was really new in that culture. People understood what it was to take care of each other, but they didn't understand what it was to take care of people who were not of their tribe or not of their religion or not, you know, didn't have the same belief system that they did. That was new. That was different. And it actually was very attractive to a world that had never known that kind of love and acceptance. So again, Paul writes it like this in chapter 5. Be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best. It's a great way to live, friends. Assume the best, expect the best, and look for the best in each other. And always do your best to bring it out. Don't expect the best in others if you're always poking them and ribbing them and giving them a hard time. No, you're to help bring out that best in in one another. Um, The NRSV puts it this way says, see that none of you repays evil for evil. That's not who we are, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. And you might say, but Pastor Mark, what about people who've done really terrible things to me? Yep, that happens. Even them. Because our master, as he was dying on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can forgive the very people that put him on the cross, we too can forgive, to untie ourselves, to, to be free from all the pain and struggle that is unforgiveness. We're not to have any part of that. So, this love for everyone is our, Acts 2's, but also the churches, you know, all of the churches. It's our witness to the outsiders that while other people love their own family or people love the own people, their own people that work for them, we are to be people who love everyone. Right? Say it with me. Everyone. That's what makes us different. And it's only that kind of love that ever has a hope of changing the world. It's really important. Abraham Smith um, writes about it this way um, in his commentary on the letter to the Thessalonians. He says this, Paul wants the church to model appropriate behavior before outsiders who in turn will be influenced by the church's distinctive holy life. So we're to live differently than the world so that the world will take notice. The world will say, you know, those Acts 2 people, man, you just, you just can't get them down. They're, they're friendly even when we're not. They, they're generous even when we're not. They are good people regardless of the circumstances that go on around them. And they have hope and they have love and they have acceptance and they have grace even in the hardest of times. And then we come to the third section of this closing part of the letter. And really, it's some wonderful admonitions. It's really seven habits for a deep and joyful life. It really is how to have a great life. And sometimes I'll have people really worked up and they'll come to me and they'll say, Pastor Mark, what is God's will for me? I just, I just don't know what it is. Please tell me, what is God's will for me? Help me discern this. I'm, it's, just, it's tearing me up. I need to know what God's will is for me. Well, you're in good luck because Paul says it very clearly. It's simply this. You want to know God's will? It's this. Rejoice always. Pray all the time. And thank God no matter what. That's God's will for your life. Let me say it again, really. God's will for your life is that you would rejoice always, pray all the time, and thank God no matter what happens because our joy isn't about our circumstances. Our joy is in the Lord. That's our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what the scripture says. So Paul writes it like this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These three things. So these are the first three of the seven. Rejoice, always, all the time. It's a great way to live. Wake up and thank God for all the things, right? For air and for sleep and for water and for flowers and for your your puppy dog and for the clouds and for the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it. All of it. The message says it like this. Be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. You see, a genuine church, a real church, a church that is healthy and growing is a happy church. It's a praying church and it's a thankful church. I'd want to be a part of a church like that, wouldn't you? You want to come to a place that is joyous, that's happy. You want to be a place that hears from God and and prays to God for, for the benefit of others and the whole world. And a thankful church. I love the way John Ortberg puts it. He says, you know, we all have to decide which tent we're going to live in. Right? Which tent will you live in? Discontent or contentment? Get it? Discontent or contentment? Your choice. We all get to choose which tent we live in. And then, habit number four, listen to your spiritual mentors. It's important. If you're going to come to a place and you're ready to learn and you listen, your life's going to get so much better. And so it it sounds weird uh, in the Bible, in the NRSV. It it doesn't show itself real easily this way. Uh, Paul writes it like this. He says, Don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets. Unfortunately, prophets doesn't mean prophets like we think of it. It means preachers or teachers or Sunday school helpers or small group leaders or youth directors. Don't quench the spirit of God. When God is trying to speak to you through others, because that's how God normally speaks is through other people. Hear it. Receive it. Don't push it back, the people who are there to help you. But then once you receive that word, Paul says, be careful because this is a brand new church. It's early, right? It's three weeks to three, four months old. He says, so receive it, but then test it. Test and discern the teaching you receive. That's habit number five, right? So as we go along, this is great. This is a great word, friends. So Paul in the NRSV says it like this, test everything, really test everything. When you hear stuff, when you hear me preach things, test it, Google it, look it up, look at other people, what they've written about the same text. And see if that resonates with you, if that's actually true, or or if Pastor Mark's just having a bad day. But friends, you would want to know that I spend hours and hours and hours every time um, I come before you. I have two different degrees, uh, a master's um, and a doctorate in ministry. And, And so I'm doing my very best to express truth and wisdom and life to you. But I won't always get it right. And and when I don't get it right, I'm going to say I'm sorry, I apologize. And when I learn something new, I'm going to teach you what I've learned. That's new. And so what I want you to know is that asking questions is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's great. It's not a lack of faith. If you don't understand a text, dig into it. Read what other great scholars have said. Read people who actually know what the Greek or the Hebrew has to say. And they can read it in the original language. Dig in. Ask good questions. It's a good thing. Not a bad thing. Adam Hamilton uh, shared with me uh, in his sermon that misinformation is 70% more likely to be retweeted on Twitter than the truth. That's from an MIT study. And the the professor said this, 70%. And maybe you've come across these sorts of things. It seems outlandish. You're like, oh, wow, that's incredible. I'm going to retweet that. Well, check it out first. Don't just share misinformation, right? I mean, our world is full of, Of nonsense. So don't believe everything somebody says. And again, (laughs) I I actually laughed out loud when I heard Adam say this. He says, even people who love Jesus can give bad advice. That's absolutely true. There are people who love you and love Jesus, but they're not well read. Or they don't, you know, they're kind of gullible. And whatever they read, they just share and reshare, retweet. Right? So even people who love Jesus, well-meaning people, people who love you, they can give you bad advice. So test it. Use the gift of discernment that God shares with his children. So that's number five. And then Paul says, once you've discerned what's good, hold on to it. Hold on to it. When you find the good stuff, when you find that nugget of truth, hang on. That's what you want to do. Hold on to what's good. That's number six. Hold fast to what is good. Uh, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Keep only what's good. So you're discerning good, bad, hold on to the good. And then throw out anything that's evil. That's the last and seventh habit. You're going to hold on to the good. You're going to discern. Then you're going to hold on to the good, and you're going to throw out the bad. That's the way to live. That's the way to have a good life. So Eugene Peterson um, is going to say like this, throw it out. Throw out anything tainted with evil. The NRSV is going to say abstain from every form of evil. And friends, this is where I find many people that I love in the church really struggling They'll watch things on TV or on the internet or in movies that is not good for them or for us. We need to be really careful about what we put in our eyes and in our mind and in our hearts and our soul. One of the great gifts that my parents gave me was that we never watched anything dark or satanic or demonic in our home ever. We just didn't do it. And I would want you to know that I've had people call me and, and they will say, hey, we're really struggling. We're, we're having a spiritual battle in our home. And I was like, well, tell me about it. And they'll tell me that their son or their daughter or something, they had a party and, and they had a Ouija board. And I'm like, dude, like, don't invite that into your life. Don't invite that into your house. You have to push back. The, don't have anything to do with anything that might be evil, that might be tainted with evil, that might be from the evil one. Right? That, I mean, that's just foolish. Don't have anything to do. Abstain from every form of evil. Throw out anything tainted with evil. And that's, that's not to call other people evil. Don't, don't mishear me. But there are things in your own spirit. that You have a check in your spirit. And you're like, uh, that's probably not good for me. Turn it off. Walk away. Go away. It's also true for books. It's true for lots of things in your life. If it's not of God. And it's not good and beautiful and right and uplifting. Walk away. It's for your own good. For your own health. For your family. Right? So how do we do this? Live out our action steps. The first thing is every day. Receive everything as a gift. When you wake up, you're like, all right. Thank you, God, for this day. I have life. I have air. I have breath in my lungs. I have water. I have sleep. I have food. I have employment. I have family. I have friends. And on and on and on. There are flowers in the field. Oh my gosh. Life is a gift. And when you receive life as a gift, it is joyous. When you know That even your own breath, even your ability to open your eyes is a gift. Your ability to breathe is a gift. Your ability to think is a gift. Worship is really saying thank you to God. So I want to encourage you to worship all day, every day. Say thank you to God and to others. Because here's the truth. Entitlement makes us miserable. If you wake up and you think somebody owes you something and you don't get it, guess what? You're upset. If you think you should have this kind of a meal and you get something you don't think is as good, you're upset. So again, you get to choose which tent you live in, contentment or discontent, your choice. But entitlement will always make you miserable. So, as a way to counteract that, say thank you. Say thank you to God and to a living human every day this week. When, when you go out to dinner, say thank you to the people who give you your food. When somebody picks up your trash, say thank you. When the garbage truck comes by and they get you recycling, say thank you, right? somebody in your house feeds the dog, say thank you. If they make your bed, say thank you. If they do the dishes, say thank you. If you come to church, say thank you. Say thank you to God and to the people in your life. It will change the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've taught us even how to live, to get along with one another, to rejoice always and to pray always and to love you and say thank you always because you are good all the time. We thank you that you've even taught us how to pray by saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.